The time is now. Hey everybody! This is Employment Law Now, Volume One, Episode Twelve. We are up to a dozen episodes. Thanks so much for listening. I am Mike Schmidt, Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor.、Uh, in our last episode, I started our sit-down interview with former EEOC General Counsel David Lopez. Got some really great feedback on that. I、uh, hope you enjoyed it and hope you found it informative. I started getting into some of his thoughts on how the EEOC has historically developed its strategic initiative plan and the kinds of things that went into getting involved on the EEOC side with certain cases and particularly certain types of issues. I also started talking with him about the EEO's mindset on very specific hot-button issues that employers are thinking about and dealing with in 2017. Today, I'm going to finish. With part two of my interview with David, as he continues to talk about some really hot, specific issues. Before I do that, though, I want to first go into my government now segment. It's the overtime rule that just simply does not go away. You all remember that the proposed rule was、uh, brought about by the President Obama Department of Labor in 2016. We then had a nationwide injunction issued by a federal court last Thanksgiving, and then once President Trump came to office, we had the new Department of Labor saying at the end of June last month that he believes, or that the Department of Labor believes, that the Department of Labor has the authority to change the salary test if it wants to. But otherwise, it does not have any interest in continuing to defend the 2016 rule that was proposed by the Obama Department of Labor. But a very interesting move last week signals that the new Trump Department of Labor, while perhaps not as certainly pure pro-employee as the former Department of Labor, is still considering a host of changes, and this time is, is asking the public for its thoughts on some very specific and focused issues. So, just last week on July 26th, the Department of Labor published an RFI, a request for information, asking for the public's thoughts on 11 sets of very specific questions. I'm happy to send you the RFI if you'd like to see it. You can email me at mschmidt@cozen.com if you want a copy of that.、Uh, but The specific questions are really tailored to specific issues that the part that the Department of Labor has in mind, as it's determining the extent to which it wants to adopt its own new set of regulations dealing with the overtime exemptions. So, for example, some of the questions in its RFI ask 
whether employers think there should be a separate minimum threshold, minimum salary level, based on the size of employers, or depending on what region of the country you're in. Should there be a different minimum salary threshold depending on the particular type of exemption we're talking about? For example, executive exemptions versus administrative versus professional exemptions. Should there be ongoing or future changes to the minimum salary level that are based on inflation or some other type of um, uh, issue that is stated in the new regulations? The questions also ask, at what point does the salary level test render the job duties test meaningless? And what do employers think about a rule, for example, that only has a duties test and does not have a minimum salary threshold for an individual to be able to be considered exempt? Interestingly, one of the 11 questions also asks very specifically, what changes have employers already taken and what changes did they take last year in anticipation of the 2016 overtime rule being implemented? It's really very interesting. I think the RFI does a very nice job of briefly summarizing the history of the exemptions, history of the amendments to them, as well as uh, the litigation that got us to where we are, and really what the current Department of Labor's take is on how it wants to go about doing this and how it believes this process of potentially amending the overtime rules should proceed. Um, again, I'm happy to send you a copy of the RFI. One other thing that I'm also happy to help with or speak with people about is if they're interested in submitting comments. And these, those can be done uh, either in writing by mail. They can be done electronically. But if there is a, a company out there or if there's a consortium of businesses that want to think about making some sort of comment uh, to any or all of these 11 focused questions, I'm happy to talk to you about doing that as well. If there are responses that are going to be submitted, if you are interested in submitting any responses, they are due on September 25th of 2017. The Department of Labor will certainly consider all responses and then decide the extent to which it's going to take action. We can most likely expect to see some proposed action by this new Department of Labor either late 2017 or I would suspect more likely in early 2018. And uh, I will certainly keep you posted on future episodes of this podcast as things continue to progress. With that said, and without any further ado, I would like to do our special guest now segment. And here is part two of my sit-down interview with former EEOC General Counsel David Lopez. Okay, we are back here uh, with David Lopez, and again, thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us. This has been great insight for our listeners. I started uh, going through uh, some of the more substantive issues that the EEOC tackled, certainly during the time that you were there at the EEOC, and we started talking about uh, the Abercrombie and Fitch case um, and a company's dress policy. Um, the, the issue of equal pay is another hot topic uh, that's out there at the moment. In addition to the EEOC's own focus on the issue, many on the state and the local levels have also taken steps to prevent, for example, salary history from being requested during a company's hiring process. What are your thoughts on that initiative, and do you believe that preventing employers from asking about salary history at prior jobs will truly accomplish equal pay goals? Um, yeah. 
One of the EFC's enforcement priorities was to address um, uh, equal pay discrimination. Um, and that's something that EFC really, you know, put a lot of effort into and it included, you know, what some people view as a controversial step to update the EEO-1 form to require employers to include salary history. That's still ongoing. Um, but concurrently with this, as you mentioned, many state and local governments have really gone beyond what federal law requires. Um, and it's really, I think, kind of created a patchwork for um, employers who operate on the national stage to have to you know, try to figure out how to comply with all these different competing obligations and just sort of try to navigate them. Um, I do think that salary history is important. I mean, it's important to uh, make sure that that doesn't uh, that doesn't um, uh, create initial bias in terms of pay because um, because I think empirically I think it's been shown that that you know that um, when women start at a lower pay rate either because of you know prior salary that that um, that, that the wage gap actually um, uh, is exacerbated over time that it widens over time. Um, so, you know, I think some of these steps are very important. I think pay transparency is very important also. Um, and I think many states have taken steps to, to you know, really ensure, uh, ensure pay transparency or ensure that um, individuals are not uh, retaliated against for talking about their pay. So you think it's important that we prevent employers from asking about this stuff, or you think it's important uh, for employers in the hiring process to be able to ask about the no, prior salary history? No, I think, I mean, I think it's important to kind of follow through with, I think, some of the state initiatives in terms of prohibiting, you know, inquiries into things that may lead to pay, pay discrimination. Because of this argument that it, continuing to ask about it and rely on it will perpetuate uh, any biases that existed beforehand. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, another uh, one of these hot and, and certainly uh, sensitive topics has involved the interpretation of sex discrimination to include discrimination based on transgender status and sexual orientation. And you, you started touching on this uh, with an earlier question. What authority do you see um, uh, as being there for the more expansive definition of sex discrimination to include transgender status and sexual orientation? And where do you see the EEOC continuing to go on that issue? Well, I mean, I think it's important to look, start with the, you know, start with the statute itself. And the statute itself just um, prohibits discrimination because of sex. It's very broadly written. Um, and I think that most people coming to the issue with fresh eyes, um, uncontaminated by, you know, by old case law will, you know, will say, of course, sexual orientation and sex are inextricably linked. Uh, what happened is that I think the court sort of uh, went um, off track. Um, some of the early decisions said, hey, sexual orientation isn't covered by Title VII because, well, it just isn't. Right, so there was no rationale. Then, of course, those cases were cited by other cases. Those were the precedent without discussion. Other cases. Yeah. Um, some courts said that that um, sexual orientation wasn't covered because in 1964, Congress certainly wasn't thinking about prohibiting sexual orientation. And then some courts said that sexual orientation isn't covered because Congress has considered amending um, Title VII or uh, separately 
coming up with um, protections uh, prohibiting discrimination against sexual orientation, but that those did not pass. Okay, um, I think with respect to the last two, you know, with respect to the last rationale, you know, I think that there is pretty good court authority out there that says you can really never draw inferences on why Congress does or does not do something. So it's probably not prudent um, or logical to, to draw inferences that, that a particular act did not pass because of its views on this. I mean, uh, an alternative explanation could be that most folks thought that Title VII actually already covered sexual orientation, right? With respect to the second point, you know, that goes back to um, another Scalia decision, Uncali. Um, Uncali was a decision that recognized... From the U.S. Supreme Court. From the U.S. Supreme Court, recognized for the first time that, that same-sex harassment was cognizable in the Title VII. Okay, a unanimous decision from the Supreme Court. Um, this involved an oil rig, um, male-on-male sexual harassment, really egregious. And this was years ago. This is not something new. No, it, it, it has been years ago. And, and the employer and the business community basically said, look, you know, same-sex harassment is not covered because Congress did not contemplate it in 1964. Justice Scalia said, you know, assuredly, you know, this is not something that was contemplated by Congress, but the coverage of the statute will go beyond the principal evils covered by, uh, by the statute. What's important is actually what the text of the statute says. And under the text of the statute, you know, um, same-sex harassment is cognizable because it potentially involves discrimination because of sex. So that was one of the key decisions that really, I think, led to a reevaluation of whether sexual orientation should be covered by Title VII, right? Because um, Justice Scalia focused on the text of the statute and said that, you know, whatever was contemplated at the time was not paramount, okay? What's paramount is how do you read the text. The other decision that's very important is um, Price, Waterhouse versus Hopkins, another Supreme Court case that basically held that um, a woman who was denied partnership at an accounting firm because she did not meet certain gender norms. There was evidence that they said she should go to charm school, she was rough around the edges, um, and the Supreme Court said that the failure to meet gender, dis discriminating against someone because they do not meet gender norms, um, that is gender stereotyping, is discrimination because of sex. So when you mix um, Oncali and Price Waterhouse, you know, um, when you start talking about gender stereotyping and sexual orientation, there's no more fundamental gender stereotype than who you should be attracted to, right? Right. Um, and then you have another line of cases that basically says you can't discriminate against an African-American who is romantically involved with a white person or a white person who's involved with an African-American, that that is discrimination because of race. And that line of cases um, was something that was very persuasive to um, judge Easterbrook, the conservative Seventh Circuit judge, because during the oral argument he kept raising the Supreme Court case of Loving versus Virginia. That was a, the case that invalidated um, uh, uh, Virginia's law that prohibited interracial marriage, and he, and he kept asking the attorney um, for um, Ivy Tech, how is this different than Loving versus Virginia? How is this different versus Loving versus Virginia? Um, and that was also part of the decision that, that came out in, in, uh, in the Seventh Circuit's hybrid decision. So, you know, it's a very dynamic area. Um, the Eleventh Circuit just denied rehearing and bonk on one of these cases. The Eleventh Circuit 
um, in that case said that it had previously ruled that sexual orientation is covered. Um, Lambda Legal, um, a nonprofit advocacy organization that has been really front and center on this issue, said that they're going to petition the Supreme Court. Uh, meanwhile, the Second Circuit in New York is going to hear um, a, uh, a case involving whether sexual orientation is covered under Title VII. It's going to hear this and bond. That means the entire court's going to hear it. Right. And so, you know, this case very well could be up in, this, in, in the Supreme Court next term. And so the, the, the makeup of the Supreme Court uh, is once again uh, very significant uh, for these kinds of issues. It is, um, but I, I've been very bullish on this issue. Um, even before Hively was handed down, I've been pretty bullish that I think, you know, I think that there's, you know, I, I was a little surprised by the 11th Circuit, uh, but I think, you know, the 7th Circuit will probably, and my guess is that they'll probably roll consistently with the 7th Circuit. Um, and I think, there, there is sort of, well, in, in a sense, I think the train may have left the station. We'll mm -hmm. see. We'll see. But I just think that this is going to be a case where the justices have, have to ask themselves, have to ask themselves whether they want to be, which side of history they want to be on. Um, and you know, so I, I, I'm pretty optimistic about how this is going to turn out, whether it's, you know the Supreme Court or otherwise. I just think at the end of the day sexual orientation discrimination in the workplace will be covered, and it's already covered in many states. And, and that's exactly what I was just going to yeah. say from a practical standpoint. When you talk to employers about, well, what should their policies include, what should their statements be, the reality is so many states, including New York, um, but other states, other local jurisdictions, already expressly prohibit discrimination on that basis anyway. Exactly. And the corporate community itself has taken a leadership role in terms of, in, in terms of, uh, of, of uh, prohibiting sexual orientation discrimination in the workplace and even more affirmatively, you know, creating uh, sort of um, an inclusive workplace culture that that um, respects um, respects everyone. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think to a certain extent that the train is off the station, but I think what's going to happen is I think that there are a couple of issues that are still going to be kind of duped out on the courts. And one is um, the purported conflict between an, an employer's exercise of religion um, and LGBT coverage. Um, there's a Sixth Circuit case that the EOC brought that is addressing that issue. Um, and then the other issue will be, you know, the whole issue of gender identity and bathroom access. Um, in that case, that issue was almost heard by the Supreme Court this term, and, and they kicked it back. But at the end of the day, that issue is going to be bounced around in different contexts because, you know, the states and local governments are moving in opposite directions. Some states are becoming much more draconian on that issue, and other states are, are becoming, are, 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 are basically, um, you know, mandating that, that employers um, are required to allow someone to use um, facilities consistent with his or her gender identity. And that's the EFC's position. Interesting. So shifting uh, gears to another protected class, um, and, and that is age, I want to talk a little bit about that. And it's 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 an interesting issue and, and, a, and a timely issue, I think, because uh, in 2017, here we are with the workforce getting older. Um, people, for a variety of different reasons, are working longer and staying at their jobs longer. Uh, this year happens to be the 50th birthday of the uh, uh, ADEA, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, which is a separate statute 
uh, enacted to deal exclusively with age discrimination rather than having it been added as another protected basis under Title VII. And I've always found or enjoyed the irony of, of telling people that you have to treat uh, age discrimination the same as, as uh, everybody else in all these other protected classes, yet we have a separate statute uh, for it, so we are treating it and its standards a little bit differently. Um, I think everybody would probably agree that we have made some strides in understanding and eradicating age discrimination in the workplace, um, but that we haven't gone far enough yet, um, particularly as the workforce, as I said, continues to get older. What are your thoughts um, on the success of the ADEA as a separate statute um, and where that has come uh, from a corporate workplace standpoint? I mean, I think the ADEA has been a successful statute, um, but it operates in a cultural context where I always feel like we're on the verge of normalizing age discrimination, where age discrimination is somehow treated differently than other forms of discrimination. And one of the things that always kind of struck me when I was a general counsel is that when I would travel the country and talk to people um, and talk to workers who were, you know, over 40 and looking for work, there was almost the presupposition that they would be discriminated against because of age. Um, that was almost a, a sadly, that was almost uh, the conventional wisdom um, that they were facing age discrimination every day. Um, and I think to the extent that that has sort of, you know, flirted with being conventional wisdom, it shows that there's still, a, that, that we still have a long way to go in terms of eradicating age discrimination um, and, and, uh, and giving full meaning to the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. Um, I mean, I think this happens at so many different levels. It happens at the level of hiring discrimination. Um, and, you know, I think that one of the big issues that is bouncing around is the whole issue of whether disparate impact hiring discrimination is, is covered by the Age Discrimination Act. Um, the 11th Circuit sitting in Atlanta has held that it is not. Um, and for those that don't know what that issue is, what are you talking about when you say disparate impact? Disparate impact is a theory of discrimination that says if you have a neutral policy and it has adverse um, impact on, it has adverse exclusionary effect on a protected group, then the employer must come back and show that it's uh, job related and consistent with business necessity um, um, or under the Age Discrimination and Employment Act that it, it's based on factors, uh, reasonable factors other than age. So it's not a policy that on its face is blatantly discriminatory against a certain age group, right. but it's a neutral policy that has an impact on that particular age group. Right, and disparate impact has been, um, you know, well established and, and codified under, you know, Title VII and, and as, as protecting African Americans and women. Um, and, you know, and other protected groups, but I think that the courts right now are split as to whether the Age Discrimination Act also, um, also prohibits uh, disparate impact discrimination in hiring. Uh, the Supreme Court has already ruled that disparate impact is available in other contexts, but the question is whether disparate, disparate impact is available in hiring. And of course, hiring is really, I think, one of the areas where you know people are very concerned in terms of the prevalence of age discrimination. So that's a big issue, um, you know. And, and these issues really run the economic spectrum. They, you know, they deal with 
older workers who are unemployed trying to you know get back into the economy, but they also involve, for instance, mandatory um, retirement policies. Um, and one of the things that the EFC did under Chair Dominguez is it brought a case against the in Austin that um, addressed the mandatory retirement policy of, of that company and the whole question in that case is whether the partners were employees or whether they were the owners. Right. So there was a lot of uh, legal... More of a threshold question before you got to the legal, ultimate legal. age discrimination issue, right. really. Yeah, and it's an important threshold question that you have to address because, you know, to the extent... Because it applies not just to age discrimination, it applies to all forms of discrimination. Right. Because if, if someone who is working for a very large, you know, very large uh, law firm... Um, and is treated basically as an employee for most purposes um, is is subject to um, a mandatory age discrimination policy and the employer is protected because that person is not an employee that employer can also engage in race discrimination, gender discrimination, and other forms of discrimination, disability mm-hmm. discrimination. So that's a big issue. And, you know, it's, it's an issue that, you know, um, obviously may affect people at the upper economic spectrum, but still it's a form of discrimination. And still it's um, a form of discrimination that's grounded in stereotypes about the ability of individuals to, you know, work productively after a certain age. Um, was there any kind of groundswell when you were at the EEOC about raising the age? I mean, the uh, the federal statute, at least, and again, state and local statutes uh, may have lower thresholds, but we're still dealing with 40 and over, um, which, you know, I'm not sure a lot of people view as old in 2017. No, I'm, well, I'm well north of that, so it's a little depressing to me that I'm, I'm in that protected age category. Has there been any, was there any kind of talk or any groundswell support for raising that uh, from 40? Well, I... You mean under under the um, Age Discrimination Act? Yes. No, not really. But I mean, I think you know, I think that there are cases that say that if you disfavor individuals who are fifty and above, but are hiring people who are, you know, in their forties, that that's that's a form of discrimination also. Because it's because of age. Because it's because of age, exactly. So there are a lot of really interesting issues, uh, but it, it it's more than being interesting. It's just a very important issue for us to kind of confront societally because it is, I think, one of the forms of discrimination that always seems like, you know, there's some pressure to normalize it, Um, just in terms of our everyday conversation, in terms of our assumptions uh, that we make, uh, but it's still discrimination and still has just damaging economic consequences um, on, you know, the lives of workers. Um, I've been involved in cases involving older workers who have been laid off and who have really devoted a good chunk of their career to a particular company, but once they, you know, once they reach a certain point, um, you know, there's sort of a decision made that uh, we don't necessarily want them to work with the public, um, you know, this is sort of a youth movement, and so, you know, I've been involved in cases and we've fought successfully um, on their behalf. Uh, recently, the EFC settled a long-standing case that was actually tried to a hung jury against Texas Roadhouse. That was a nationwide case um, that addressed discrimination against um, um, front-of-the-house workers um, at that company nationwide. Um, you know, I was involved with the case. I was a general counsel. I thought the evidence was pretty good. Um, thought we had most of the jurors in that case. Uh, but 
at the end of the day, it was a deadlock jury, and at the end of the day, you know, both parties were able to roll up their sleeves and settle the case. But it's a very important case. It's a hiring discrimination case for, you know, jobs that don't pay very well, but in certain communities and for certain people who want to, that need to get back to the workplace, you know, it's a very, very important case. Yeah, I think uh, hiring practices and the hiring process is going to continue to be uh, something that, uh, you know, the EEOC, but the plaintiff's bar, I think everybody's going to continue to focus on as we move forward. Um, sort of the last substantive issue that I just wanted to ask you about because we've been hearing a lot about it, and that's uh, the merger of the EEOC and the OFCCP. Um, what is that about for employers who have no idea what I'm talking about, <laughs> and how does it impact employers, if at all? Well, it depends on whether you're a government contractor. The OFCCP enforces executive orders that uh, prohibit government contractors from engaging in um, a variety of forms of discrimination, not just based on race and sex, uh, but also based on veteran status and sexual orientation. And a pretty significant percentage of um, employers are, are government contractors, right? And so the view, uh, you know, that I think the philosophy undergirding the executive order is that to be a government contractor is a privilege and not a right, and that if you are going to be a government contractor, you should use taxpayer dollars in a non-discriminatory fashion. And so the OCCP has been responsible for enforcing that. The Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs um, is a part of the Department of Labor, which everyone knows is a cabinet-level agency. So there is some substantive overlap in terms of the work of the ESC and the OCCP. Um, not, not exact. Um, and there's certain, you know, there, there are certainly many things that OCCP does that the EFC has not done before. Um, there's no experience at the EFC with um, government contractors. Um, we don't have responsibility over uh, discrimination against veterans. Um, and the question is really whether if OCCP is transferred to the EFC, um, and consolidated with the EOC, whether the resources will come over with it. That means, you know, the most importantly, the human resources, the individuals with the experience dealing with that statute, with, with, with the executive orders. Um, and the concern is that this is sort of a backhanded way to really um, kind of undermine the executive orders because if the resources don't come, uh, come over, then you really start to dilute and undermine, I think, the enforcement objectives of the OFCCP. Now, what's interesting about this proposal is that it's a proposal that came out of, I think, the, um, the Heritage Foundation. Um, and I think, as far as I can tell, the Heritage Foundation is really the only organization supporting it because this proposal has uh, basically triggered widespread opposition by um, the uh, worker advocacy community, uh, but also by the business community. Um, and so as someone who was in the enforcement arena, and I hear that the business community is against it, I'm like, hmm, what's that all about? And it could be that there's some concern that the OCCP would have subpoena authority, um, and that, you know, that there would be, I think, you know, um, certain economies of scale and synergies in terms of enforcement that uh, would be uh, would be possible um, if, if, if the agencies were consolidated. Um, but, you know, again, the devil is in the details. Um, and, you know, really, the, you know, the, the, the threshold question um, is whether 
whether the proposal would um, would involve the resources coming over with the program, um, and that is an absolute must if <laughs> it's going to be a successful merger. And how close are we to a merger if it does happen? I think we're pretty far from that. I just don't think it's going to happen. I think there's too much opposition. Um, yeah. So before I ask you uh, what you're doing now and uh, you know and, and doing these days, I want to just uh, end by asking you a question about uh, prognostication when it comes to the EEOC. Um, so you've obviously left the public sector and you've joined the uh, well-renowned employee side law firm of Outen and Golden uh, in Washington, D.C., which is where you're based. Yes. Um, but the EEOC's work certainly will continue, um, even though you have left the, uh, the good agency. President Trump just nominated Janet Dillon uh, as the chair of the EEOC. Um, depending on who you speak with, some uh, on the defense side and the company side are are all excited about it, I guess, because she has uh, led legal departments at big-name companies. Um, so they are taking that to mean that she is going to be, I suppose, more favorable uh, for companies. What are your thoughts on Janet Dillon's nomination and where the EEOC is going to go from here? Well, first of all, let me say that you know uh, uh, cur the current acting chair, Ricky Lipnick, you know, really deserves a lot of credit and a lot of praise for the work that she's done at the agency. And frankly, I was a little surprised that she didn't get the nod uh, because she's someone who is almost the quintessential public servant. She's very deliberative. Um, you know, I still have images of, you know, being in her office and, and, and sort of talking through cases. Um, and so she's almost like the quintessential reasonable person. You know, she, you know, certainly more conservative than I am, and, and you know, she voted against many of my cases. Uh, but one thing that is very special about her um, is that she always uh, valued and cherished, I think, the bipartisan history of the agency, of the commission, um, and cherished its role as a deliberative body and was very respectful of the career staff um, that makes the agency run. And so, you know, with respect to Janet Dillon, you know, she's someone who I think was the general counsel of three legal departments. She graduated number one at UCLA. Um, so she's someone, you know, you know, clearly who has, you know, both gray matter and, um, and leadership abilities. But I don't think a lot is known about her philosophies. Um, and I think that that's really where um, the Senate's advising consent function comes in. I think it's very important for the Senate to make sure, you know, first and foremost, um, that, you know, she uh, values the anti-discrimination laws. Um, secondly, you know, that she um, certainly appreciates and intends to carry on, I think, the bipartisan deliberative nature of the commission. Um, and, you know, that that uh, she will, you know, certainly have an open mind with respect to different ideas and different ways to do things. Like, you know, I don't. I think that anyone who's at that agency, and and this is Democrats and Republicans. I think, you know, I think um, I mentioned Chair Dominguez earlier. Chair Dominguez was the one who initiated the systemic task force. Chair Dominguez, um, a Republican appointee, um, was the one who did one of the. I think the 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 uh, most notable initiatives at the EOC, and that's after 9-11, to really uh, become very proactive in terms of addressing backlash discrimination. Chair Dominguez was there for uh, the Morgan Stanley case that I mentioned earlier. Chair Earp, another Republican uh, chair, 
um, initiated the E-Race um, initiative, which was designed to redouble our efforts to address and extricate um, racial discrimination. Um, so, you know, it, I, I think the question is whether, you know, whether uh, whether Janet Dillon has um, an agenda designed to ensure that the agency continues to function uh, as an instrument to eradicate employment discrimination in the workplace. Um, and, and there's just not a lot known about her in terms of what her philosophy is, in terms of where she's coming from. So it's hard to tell from an employer's standpoint whether they can anticipate seeing a very different EEOC in the coming months and years. Yeah, it's, it's hard to tell, but it's also important to remember that, you know, what, you have to remember what the chair does. The chair is in charge of the operations of the agency, um, except for the litigation program. Um, but the chair is also one of five commissioners, a bipartisan commission. So the chair just has one vote, right? So you know the chair, the chair's job is a hard job. It's a big job. It's a very difficult job to run that agency. Um, you know, particularly given the the uh, resource situation. Uh, but as a policymaker, the chair is just one of five votes. Um, you know, the general counsel, once a case in litigation, has independent authority over the litigation program. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I think that, you know, with, uh, you know, with the recent change of administration, that I think most people, not just me, I think most people think that the EOC is not going to see, you know, um, at the same types of significant changes that you're seeing in other agencies. Um, but it's, it's hard to tell. I mean, no, I don't know what her agenda is. I don't know who the other commissioners will be. Uh, we don't know who the general counsel nominee will be. So there's just, I think, a lot of question marks out there. But I think what's clear is that um, there will be three Democratic commissioners at least until December. Um, and so, you know, um, I don't anticipate any immediate uh, changes. Would you be surprised if Dylan is not confirmed? I don't know anything about her. I really, I don't know anything yeah. about her, but I think, um, you know, I, I guess I would only say that I hope the Senate does its job um, and uh, and asks the right questions, even if they're tough questions, and that the Senate views itself as more than a rubber stamp. Um, and, you know, not to be overtly political, but I think at, at times recently the Senate has sort of defaulted to kind of a rubber stamp mode. And, and uh, I think, you know, I think that we have a separation of powers for a reason. Um, I, you know, I went through a tough confirmation hearing, I went to oversight hearings, um, and I was happy to do it. Um, I was happy to do it because that was part of our constitutional system. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think we have three branches of government for a reason. Yeah, no, this is uh, this is all great stuff, and, and I've spent all this uh, crazy amount of time with you talking about your what may seem like a prior life to you at this point with the EEOC, and, and I appreciate all this uh, terrific insight. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. Um, right now, I'm a partner at Outland Golden. Outland Golden is the largest employee side law firm um, in the country, and I'm responsible for the Washington D.C. office, which opened in January. Um, and I think substantively, uh, my focus is on, on uh, class action lawsuits, on systemic discrimination. So I've been involved in you know, several cases already across the country. Yesterday, um, I was in Miami and we filed a lawsuit um, against a large consumer products company uh, for discrimination 
uh, because of alienage, because it denied jobs to the dreamers, to um, individuals who were work authorized under the, um, the uh, DACA program. Um, and other immigrants with lawful um, um, employment status. So that's you know the type of case of, um, that I've been working on. I'm involved in a big um, class action gender discrimination case in New Mexico. Um, so you're all around the country I'm dealing with this. Yeah, so it's an, it's a nationwide practice, uh, but I also have individual clients, um, and um, I work with you know um, just a wonderful, wonderful group of people. Um, who really know just about everything there that you need to know about about the protection of of, uh, of worker rights um, from wage and hour to pregnancy discrimination to family leave to executive compensation and you know we have a uh, lawyers representing lawyers practice we you know we represent lawyers we represent other professionals we represent low wage workers we represent immigrants. Um, and it's a very collegial, um, a very collegial, and very, very special place. Yeah, and I've I've known several people uh, who are at uh, out in Golden for years. All good people doing uh, good work uh, for their clients. Is there something about a particular case that moves you or or prompts you to say, you know, I really want to take on this case or this issue? Well, I mean, I, I, I think you know, I think the the, the geek in me obviously likes <laughs> um, sort of you know uh, new legal issues. Um, you know, I think the um, the <laughs> you know I, I, you know I think sort of going back to my upbringing with my parents. My parents were very much you know involved in in uh, social justice activities. So I think the opportunity to further social justice and and advance opportunity and advance freedom um, is something that you know is very meaningful for me. So um, you know, people used to ask me at the ESC. Were there certain types of cases you like better than others? And I think my answer was always like, I like the good cases. Um, and I had cases involving race discrimination, and age discrimination, and sexual harassment, and pregnancy. And I can't honestly say that that uh, for the most part that any one case, um, you know, was was my favorite. It's almost like choosing among children. Um, I did do a case as a trial attorney involving um, a Somali Muslim woman who was fired um, by Alamo um, because she wanted to wear a hijab during Ramadan. And we were able to secure a pretty significant jury verdict in that case. Um, and then I find myself, several years later, being involved in the Abercrombie case, which also involved you know, um, uh, religious um, observation under Title VII religious discrimination. So, you know, those cases, you know, certainly stand out in my mind, um, you know, in part because of the, the, the two women who brought the cases, they were just very special. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I, you know, care very much about those cases. But again, it is almost like choosing among children. Sure. And, um, and I, you know, I tend to like most of the cases I work on. Do you think we're going to, given the political climate that we're in now, do you think we're going to continue to see more uh, of an uptick on the uh, religious and national origin discrimination front? Um, yeah, I think unfortunately, I think we probably will, um, you know, continue to see kind of, you know, in certain uh, parts of the country, you know, blow back against religious minorities and um, against, uh, against immigrant workers. Uh, but I think at the same time, I think what you've seen is I think you've seen sort of an unprecedented level of, 
of action um, really at the state and local um, level to ensure you know pluralism and inclusiveness and I think you know our finest angels and so I think that's happening at the same time and I'm, I'm very proud to watch that occur. That's terrific again you know I, I, I don't know that I can get any of my closest friends to spend this much time talking to me so uh, I really appreciate the amount of time uh, you've spent with me here and uh, going through some of these issues I, I know that the listeners to this podcast will find this extremely valuable and useful so thank you so much again thank you my pleasure that was great uh, he was really forthcoming in uh, so many of his answers, and you can tell he's got such a passion for what he does. I'm sure he will continue to be successful and continue to do great things uh, in the next chapter of his professional life. But for us, uh, that's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found both parts of the David Lopez interview helpful and informative, and we will continue to bring on outside guests who we think can address issues that are important to your company. Until then, I hope your labor is productive.